if if someone does not repent of of homosexual sin, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Um, that's different to to other areas of disagreement. I I may disagree with my friend who's Baptist, but I don't think they're going to hell to, for being a Baptist. And I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I think being a Baptist is punishment enough. You don't need any, <laughs> any, anything else on top of that. So it's That's a different fair. it's a different order of seriousness. Um, Eternity is at stake here. My name is Joel Setacase. I'm a Christian apologist, husband, and the father of four kiddos. In 2009, I left my job in the business world to teach high school Bible at Chicago Hope Academy. That decision would set me on a journey that would bring me first to seminary to study apologetics and earn my master's in philosophy of religion, then into local church ministry, where I became a youth pastor and eventually an interim lead pastor, and then to joining Crew and launching the Think Institute in 2019. Now, I'm on a mission to help fathers lead their families in defending the Christian message. I don't have all the answers, but I'm determined to go find them. And through this show, I'm reporting back to you, the Think Squad, what I discover. Welcome to the Think Podcast. Really quickly before we start. If you have an interest in the intersection of fatherhood and apologetics, as I do, as well as philosophy, theology, and many, many leather-bound books, I want to let you know about our online community, the Think Squad group on Facebook. There, you can join hundreds of other Christ followers also on the same journey. We trade apologetic stories and strategies, discuss philosophical and theological questions. It's like a huge late-night bull session in your favorite cigar lounge, and it's actually led to some real-life hangouts as well. So check it out, the Think Squad Facebook group. Question for you, Think Squad. How well do you know your neighbors? Are you on a first-name basis with the family next door? How about the people across the street or the lady down by the end of the block who walks her two dogs past your house in the evenings? How well do you know them? As followers of Jesus, we're commanded to love our neighbors. And the most loving thing we can do is evangelize them, to tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's hard to evangelize and it's hard to love someone that you don't know. So who are the neighbors that we're supposed to be loving through evangelism? Have you ever thought about that? How about your actual neighbors, that family next door, that family across the street, the lady with the dogs? God has specifically placed these people in proximity to you and your family. It's time to take the opportunity he's given you. And as a father, this is your chance to model loving your neighbor through evangelism and apologetics for your kiddos too. All right, so far so good. But this is all easier said than done, because our neighbors are complex people with their own stories and their own sins. So how do we preach the gospel in a way that is biblically faithful and doesn't affirm them in their sin while still doing it in a loving way that makes them feel loved? Today, we're going to talk about how to share the gospel with your gay neighbors in a Christ-like and loving way without affirming them in their lifestyle. To do this, we're going to need help. This is why I've brought on Sam Alberry for today's episode. Sam is a pastor, apologist, and 
public speaker who has done extensive work in the subject area of same-sex attraction and the church. His books include Why Bother with the Church, Seven Myths About Singleness, What God Has to Say About Our Bodies, and Is God Anti-Gay? It was that last one that put Sam on my radar when I read it years ago. And while I appreciated it, I wasn't quite sure what to make of Sam, the man himself. With so much confusion in this area of theology and ministry out there, was Sam solid or not? Well, I mentioned this question to my friend K.J. Johnson. He's the Chicago director of the C.S. Lewis Institute, and I asked him this a while back, and he answered in no uncertain terms. Not only was Sam an excellent thinker and writer, he was indeed a godly, orthodox follower of Jesus Christ. I knew he'd be the perfect guest for an episode like this. I'm convinced you'll be convinced of this too as you listen. My conversation with Sam helped me better understand how to evangelize and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with same-sex attracted and gay neighbors, and that distinction is important. Listen for how Sam explains that later. And as you seek to lead your family in defending and sharing the Christian message, I think it'll help you too. All right, well, Sam Elbury, thank you so much for joining me on the ThinkPod today. Thanks for having me. It's good to be with you. Yeah, and I'm so excited to have you on. I've really been looking forward to this because I know you're a straight shooter. And Sam, here's how I know you're a straight shooter. Because when I mentioned that I was, you know, when I first reached out to you, I mentioned that I was friends with KJ Johnson. And you immediately said, no, I know you're a liar because KJ doesn't have any friends. Yeah, KJ's one of those guys who, within seconds of meeting him, I knew that part of the reason God had put him on the planet was for me to mock him. So um, <laughs> I've been dutifully, busily doing that ever since. It, it's funny. I, I, it seems like God's giving me the same calling. What, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> He's got the gift of being a good punch bag. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, he, because if anyone can handle it, it's definitely KJ. He can. Um, for those who don't know, if you're listening, KJ Johnson is the Chicago director for the CS Lewis Institute. And, um, how, how do you know KJ? Do you know him from the, from RZIM or? Yeah, through RZIM. We were both on staff at the same time. So yeah, wonderful guy. Yeah, totally wonderful guy. And are you still working with RZIM or? No, I, I finished with them probably back in February with all the, the stuff that was going on. I felt, um, for various reasons that I wanted to to pull out of the organization. Okay, so right now, so you are you're an apologist, you're a pastor, you are an author, public speaker. What of the projects you have going on right now, Sam, are you most excited about? Well, I get to do lots of different things and I I enjoy the variety. So I've got a book coming out next week, actually, um, which I'm excited about because I've been oh. working on this for about five years now um, on what the Bible says about our bodies. So basically looking at how the gospel is good news for our bodies. So I'm excited that that's come to to this stage now. I'm starting to think about a, another book project or two. I've got a couple of articles I'm working on, some speaking coming up. So lot, lots of things to keep me out of mischief, I hope. Why did you decide to tackle a book about bodies? Well, um, both from my experience as a pastor and getting into apologetics, it, it seems as though 
A confusion about what our bodies are and mean lies behind a lot of the issues that we're struggling with today, both in culture and in the church. So everything from gender identity to body image issues to eating disorders to the sort of proto-Gnosticism that's that's kind of doing the rounds in, in parts of culture too. So we, we've overlooked in the sort of reformed evangelical world, I think, the, the theological significance of our embodiedness. Um, our Catholic friends have been more diligent and attentive than we have on this area. So I really wanted to, to really just explore some of what the Bible teaches us about our bodies and um, the significance of our bodies to our faith. Man, that sounds like it would be hugely important right now with all the confusion. So, so you get into this in your new book. You, you talk about the transgender reality and movement. I do, yes, as one of a number of different areas of sort of application and thought. But yeah, looking particularly at how the creation of Adam helps correct our kind of anthropology, because God didn't make a spirit called Adam and then look for a body to put him into. God formed, you know, the body out of the dust of the earth and then animated it. So we're not, we're not. Yeah embodied spirits we're animated flesh um Whoa. that changes a lot about how we understand identity and even who the real me is because the kind of narrative of of our culture is the real you is who you feel yourself to be inside irrespective of what your body happens to look like your body is entirely accidental and therefore incidental so the the starting point of scripture is very very different but actually more i think stabilizing comforting reassuring because whatever problems we have with our bodies and all of us have some issues with our bodies whether it's health or image or something else at least we can have the the assurance that we are meant to be here um david could say even of his fallen body that he had been fearfully and wonderfully made and um i think in a very anxious culture like ours that is that is good news for people I asked Sam what terminology we should use to frame the discussion as we think about bringing the gospel to our neighbors. What is the most biblical, consistently Christian theological way that we can describe the lifestyle that we're talking about? Same-sex attracted, gay, sodomite, homosexual? Do we go Greek and say arsenikoite? You know, hmm. what um, what terms should we be using and, and where where do we draw those terms from? Yeah, and as ever, there's there's the issue both of what we understand from the Bible to be true, and then there's thinking through how do we communicate that in a way that will be able to be understood, able to be engaged with. So I tend to use the language of same-sex attraction because I think it it's it's less likely to be misunderstood by people around me uh, gay is is so freighted with language of identity and ontology and all those sorts of things um i think i i prefer the language of same sex attraction because it it doesn't say more than i need it to and it doesn't say less than i need it to um i can talk about christians who struggle with same sex attraction and i'm not to you know I'm not saying that they make it their identity, which the language of being gay might imply. But similarly, I, I think calling it same-sex lust, 
says too little because there's, there's more going on with these dynamics than merely sexual desire and sexual activity. There's often emotional idolatry and other things too. So I find same-sex attraction gets to the sort of thing I'm trying to talk about. Um, no language is, is immune from being misunderstood. And obviously it varies from place to place what, what particular baggage certain terminology carries with it. And you don't always know that until you step on the landmine. Um, some people in the secular world don't like the language of same-sex attraction because they, they think it's come out of a kind of ex-gay way of thinking. Actually, younger secular people tend to prefer it because it's it's less binary sounding than being straight or gay. Hmm. So it's interesting. Interesting, yeah. The sensitivities shift from place to place, from generation to generation. So uh, if I'm talking to, to people who aren't Christians, um, you know, I, th I think if people know you're not trying to offend them, they, they tend to be forgiving and generous with, with the language that you use. Okay, so that makes sense. So the language of same-sex attraction, I can very clearly see the utility of that for use within the church. Help me understand, would you still use that term to describe, for example, two men who are in what they deem to be a marriage where they've gone through the ceremony and they've made the commitment? At that point, it seems like they've gone from same-sex attracted to same-sex committed or actively practicing same-sex activity. Do you, do you change the term for that or do you stick with same-sex attracted? Yeah, I probably would change the term because I want to reflect, as, you, as you're implying, the reality of what's actually going on. I want to use language that if they overheard me speaking, they would recognize themselves in, in the description. So I might, I might talk about them being a gay couple or a couple of guys who are in a a gay relationship or something like that, because for them it is more, most likely going to be something that's more defining um, than would be the case for a, a Christian trying to resist that form of temptation. So you're right. It, it, in that instance, it's gone beyond mere attractions. It's gone into, you know, like, like you say, a committed way of living and, and behaving. So okay. it's good for the language to reflect that, that kind of escalation. Um, I like what you said about you want the term to be one that they would hear and they would see themselves in the description. Um, is there a danger though, Sam, when we're using terms? So I'm coming at this as a presuppositional apologist and I'm thinking mm -hmm. the unbelievers always trying to define their terms and describe their own position in a way that vindicates themselves and ultimately puts God on the hook for, you know, well, God, if you had given me more evidence or God, if you had not done this in my life, et cetera, et cetera. Um, is there a risk in using worldly terminology or terminology that comes out of the uh, gay movement that we're going to be in some way validating an unbiblical position? I'm not saying that, that that's what's happening here. I'm just wondering, is that a risk mm -hmm. that's, that, that's, that's there? Um, yeah, there, I think there is a danger. And it, it's that tension that we we face, I think, in, in a lot of areas where we're, we're wanting to use language that will connect with people, that will enable us to have a conversation, whilst being aware that that sometimes means using language that might be more native to their worldview than to our worldview. Um, 
And so one of the one of the scriptures I think that that helps us with with this is is Proverbs twenty six four and five, which always mm. befuddled me until I started having these kinds of conversations, where we're told, "Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself." So if you use their language, their categories, their worldview, the danger is that you end up adopting it, you you validate it, you give it credence even to your own heart. But the very next verse says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So sometimes it's wise not to use the terminology and the, and the categories of, of the person that we're speaking to. Sometimes it is wise to, because by doing so, we can begin a conversation which, God willing, over time can lead them into wisdom. So there's a, there's a wisdom call. Um, in certain scenarios, I I will be more um, ready to use categories that I, I don't agree with than I would be in other instances. Sam offered an example from another point on the LGBT spectrum, namely the T. Um, so one one example would be if I'm, and this has happened a few times, if I meet a non-Christian transgender person, um, and let's say for the sake of argument, it, it's a biological male identifying as as female, and they say, I'd like you to call me Susan. Um, I probably will, based on the fact that I, I, it will be hard to have a conversation with this person if I don't at least give them, you know, the name that they, they've asked me to address them as. Now, if, if I'm in church and someone who's been at the church for many, many years, a guy comes up to me and says, Hey, I'm I'm now identifying as Susan. I'd like you to call me Susan. Hmm. I'm going to say no because it's a very different situation. Um, with with someone who's not a Christian, I I want to be wise about being flexible in language if it will enable a conversation that I hope will be one in which I can commend truth. Yeah. When it when it's a Christian whose direction of travel is away from faith rather than potentially towards it, I'm going to approach it very differently because I'm, I don't want to give them anything that will feel like I'm validating their way of thinking. So some of it will depend on not just where the person's at, but which direction the person seems to be heading in. You know, as you're describing that, I thought of Jude. And, you know, there's this great passage in Jude where it, it talks about, it's, Jude is a great book. It's super short, one chapter, but it's great for apologists. And it's great for what you're talking about, these conversations, for guiding these conversations within the church between stronger believers and those who might be going astray, or as you said, moving away, moving in the wrong direction. So in verse 21, it says, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Verse 22, and have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So that to me, has a lot of that same Proverbs 26, 4, and 5 vibe, which, by the way, I'm so glad you mentioned those two verses because you just put so many of my precept listeners at ease. Okay, you mentioned, <laughs> you mentioned Proverbs 26, 4. Don't answer a fool according to his folly. Okay, we're good. Um, 
But but I think these verses in Jude have the same kind of, look, you're snatching them out of the fire, but be careful lest you adopt their way of thinking, lest you fall into their sin. Um, there's a strong Galatians 6 vibe there as well, where you who are spiritual, you know, rescue, uh, help them carry their burdens, help, you know, bring them back, but be careful you don't fall into sin yourself. And so, uh, so um, that, that, that made me think of that as you're, as you're talking about that. What, what do you think? Do you mm. see any of those parallels there? I think so. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, I think that's, a, that's a great parallel text to go to. Um, then Sam did something interesting. He brought up a really fascinating point. To further explore the idea of using terminology for the sake of the gospel in different contexts, he began to explore Paul's appeal to his own Roman citizenship in the book of Acts. I'm, I'm thinking out loud here, so this this is not definitive, but I'm, I'm also wondering what we make of when Paul plays the card, you know, I'm a Roman citizen. Hmm. Um, because that we know that that is nowhere near Paul's identity, but there's a right. kind of gospel expediency for him to say at, at a certain point, "Hey, I'm a Roman citizen," hmm. because he's he's trying to, you know, think of the cause of the gospel and what will protect gospel witness, what will um, enable it, what will set a precedent for other christians who may get the same opposition he's facing um so it's interesting that paul will play the roman card at a moment like that but in none of his letters does he introduce himself as being a roman a roman christian right so what's the parallel that you see there and what's the connection between that and our topic yeah, of conversation it's, today? it's a tentative parallel rather than an exact one but i think again it means sometimes we can we can use certain things that might describe us, but we don't believe define us. Okay. And use, using a, a term like that, even as a descriptor, doesn't mean we mean it's it's defining of us. Hmm. Um, one of the great things, that, you know, about being a Christian is that many of the things that describe me don't define me. Um, I'm I'm thankful for that. Amen. So um, I'm not saying it's a uh, an argument for diving headlong into all kind of <laughs> unbelieving terminology that is out there in the LGBT kind of conversation. Right. Um, but I think that there can be sometimes missional contexts where occasionally using a word as a, as a way into a conversation or a way into an opportunity, maybe there may be some warrant for that. At this point, Sam and I were now ready to discuss the impossible question and the reason why you're probably listening to this episode. How do we evangelize the gay couple that just moved in to your neighborhood? How do we bring them the gospel, the good news, and the love of Jesus Christ without affirming their sin or their lifestyle? And as you'll see, this is an especially pertinent question for me because... I have someone I know who's facing this exact situation. Listen, so I know when people say I'm asking for a friend, usually that means they're asking for themselves. This actually, I actually am asking for a friend. Um, there's a good friend of mine who is a Christian, godly man. He's raising Christian kids who are slightly older than mine. And a couple of years back, a, what you might call a gay couple, two men living as they would define as a married couple. I'm trying to nuance my language, mm. as you can tell. I'm trying to be very careful in my language. But they moved in across the street. 
Now, this couple of guys have adopted small children. And at this situation, or at this moment in time, one of the guys has gotten sick. I don't know the details. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the particular concern is. I do know that the prognosis is not good. And my friend who lives across the street from these guys, he's telling me he knows he needs to witness at least to the one guy who's Mm -hmm. sick. But as you can imagine, Sam, it feels like this huge challenge, a major obstacle, because although they're pleasant with each other, good neighbors, you know, borrow a cup of sugar, they've never had any kind of serious conversation. Yeah. And I don't know why that is, but that's, that's the, that's the situation. Um, when it comes to my friend, how would you advise him? What is the most important thing that he and other Christians in a similar situation need to know about having that evangelistic conversation without becoming like him, answering the gay neighbor without affirming his lifestyle? How do we yeah. even get that conversation started, and what does he need to know about it? Yeah, well, that that's one danger, and the, the other danger is is being so careful not to affirm that he he kind of burns any bridge that could have been used to start with. Good point. Um, so there's there's a, it's a tricky needle to thread, um, and it's not unique to to that specific kind of scenario. We, we deal with this actually on multiple kind of fronts, don't we? When we meet unbelievers of of different kinds who are into all kinds of stuff, that I think one of the things that makes it more slightly more delicate and tricky when it comes to these kind of same-sex relationships is because often for the for the person themselves this is defining for them and so it's not just me saying to you hey i really like you but i think your taste in music is lousy <laughs> right it's, it's not that level of disagreement it's they hear it as a rejection of who they believe themselves to be at their very core and so Sometimes we can think what we're simply doing is not affirming a lifestyle, but what is being heard from us is a fundamental rejection of of who that person is in their entirety, which would never be what we were wanting to say. So two two things generally help me um, with these kinds of things. One is uh, Proverbs 18, is it 13, says that to answer before we hear is folly and shame. Yeah. Um, I cite that, that one a lot. And I, I, yeah. I need to hear that one a lot. Me too. And both in the realm of, of pastoral ministry and in the realm of apologetics, it's so key. We we need to understand people as well as we can to gain wisdom about how best to commend Christ to them. There's there's not we don't only have one way of sharing the gospel. We you know there's so many entry points, there's so many on ramps. I find the better I've I've got to know someone the better my instincts are about where to begin in talking to them about Jesus. So by listening to someone, what I really want to get is enough of their story, if they're comfortable sharing their story to get a sense of their, their hopes and fears, Hmm. hopes and fears. Tell me what someone's functional savior is most Hmm. of the time. Um, And that, you know, and 
people can be in the same scenario, but having got there by very, very different routes. And the backstory often helps me to, to get a sense of where my starting point is. Um, so that that's one principle. The other principle is because in most cases, um, you know, LGBT type people fear that we're out to get them, that we have a special animus just for them. Right. Um, I find it a good rule of thumb for me, particularly when it's people I don't know very well yet, is I try not to say to someone what I can't say to everyone. How so? So um, I'll give you an example. I was, I was speaking somewhere once on the gospel and sexuality, and a young lady came up to me afterwards uh, and basically said, you know, I'm a lesbian. What do you what do you think of that? Um, <laughs> and if she was expecting me to faint with horror or, or <laughs> right. what, but um, so I said to her, I said, well, thanks for saying hi and for, for sharing that. I said it's interesting. Jesus has some really challenging things to say about sexuality to all of us. Mm-hmm. And she said, oh, why? What does he say? So I talked a bit about Matthew five and looking with lust um, and how that contradicts god's plan for human sexuality and i I wanted her to see how the gospel lands on all of us before taking her to see how the gospel lands on her situation specifically okay my my sense was if i had begun my answer by saying well the bible says being a lesbian is a sin Mm -hmm. she would have heard more than i was saying how so she I think most likely she would have heard me saying, you are a worse kind of sinner than everybody else. Um, I'm singling you out in a way that I, you know, is not the case for everyone else. So I wanted her to realize that actually Jesus' sexual ethic convicts and humbles and challenges, actually, and condemns every single one of us who are in Adam. Um, so that when she saw the specific ways that she was being confronted by the gospel, I think it will help her to think, okay, this is just one type of how everybody's convicted mm-hmm. by the gospel. Um, so that people don't feel as though they're being looked down on, singled out, specially condemned, that kind of thing. There are particularities about people's sin. Not all sin is the same. Um but I, I, I always want to start by showing how actually Jesus puts all of us in the same boat. And then then we can look at some of the differences within that framework. Well, Jesus himself says, why do you call me good? None is good, save God alone. Yeah, there exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so so. But that's kind of thing. The trouble is people have heard, people have, have got enough wrong ends of the stick about bits and pieces of Christianity to know that there is such a thing as sin and condemnation, but Mm -hmm. they don't know that Jesus says that no one is good. Right. They just think that Christians say that those people aren't good, whereas the assumption is straight people are or whatever they might be thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And part of what uh, grinds my gears about that too is uh, the media is not helping us out any. I, I don't personally know any Christians I'm not saying that there aren't any out there. I'm sure there are, Sam, but I don't know any Christians personally who think, who actually think, well, 
homosexuals are a special kind of evil. Everyone else is a less special kind of evil, but still super evil. But we Christians, thank God, we are preserved from sin and we are holier than it. I don't know any Christians who actually think that, but the portrayal in the media, mm-hmm. in the TV, uh, you know, any, any, you know, whether it's documentaries, movies, it, it seems like there's that common trope, the self-righteous Christian, which yeah. to the extent that that makes us reflect and say, how have I been self-righteous? That can be a good thing. But the, Sam, between you and me, I'm starting to get the suspicion that the world is actually not on the Lord's side. <laughs> That's just a hunch, right? All right. So we've laid out some guidelines for what to do and say to our neighbors. But to do any of this, there has to actually be a conversation. There has to be an encounter. So how do we get started? What's the first step? Is it just walking across the street and saying, I'm a Christian, can I pray for you? Or what? how yeah. does that even begin? Yeah, I think so. Um, and again, everyone is different. So that what what works in one instance may not be the right thing in every instance. But my, my sense would be, particularly when there's there's an obvious need going on within that household is, is to say listen i've heard you know one of you's very sick is there is there anything you guys need um we're just across the street we're christians we're we're committed to trying to help our neighbors and you know literal neighbors as well as kind of general neighbors um uh, hospitality i think is is a good starting point um whether that's you know come over if there's anything you need or shout if you need us to bring food over or if you need some errands run or anything like that i think trying to sort of show practical care and love is a is a good first step um and i find often then helps people be more disposed to listen a bit more kindly than they might otherwise do okay so I know that some of our listeners right now are thinking, what's the biblical support for that? You know, why why begin with that rather than an introduction to the gospel, a proclamation of um, the, the good news of Jesus Christ, sin, conviction, salvation in, in Christ? Why start with the tangible needs and not the proclamation? I think that, well... I, I think we know that serving the needy is is honouring to God. So we don't need a reason yeah. to serve. There's a need around us. We're there to help. Um, and we know that you know we're to make disciples of all nations. So we have a an obligation to help them in their temporal suffering, and we have an obligation to help them with the potential eternal suffering. Um, I, I think it, it's often it can sound abrupt and unsympathetic when there's there's a particular physical need. If we go in straight with gospel proclamation, it can be a bit tone deaf if we're not sort of acknowledging that the sort of the actual needs of the moment. Which is why I think hospitality is often a good starting point and you know it's interesting when you talked about gospel proclamation just then you even the the terminology you used then implied we start with sin 
Um, and too much evangelism I hear these days starts with sin. How so? Um, the Bible doesn't start with sin. The Bible starts with with creation. So I, I, I worry that sometimes we think sharing the gospel means the first thing I've got to say to someone is you're a sinner and therefore you need the Savior. Um, I think a, a lot of people actually need to realize they've been created by God. Um, they have worth in his sight. Um, you are worth more than many sparrows, Jesus says. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that both dignifies them and then sets up why sin is so horrific. Um, and I think hospitality and care are a very good tangible way of demonstrating the truth of Genesis 1, that we believe someone is made in the image of God, that they are, they are precious, they are of extraordinary worth. And it can be a good way of, of physically demonstrating that to someone so that as we then begin to to speak the truth of the gospel, it carries a bit more credibility because they've already seen us living some of those aspects of, of the gospel as well. So if I understand right, then you're, what you're advocating for is an affirmation of the person's worth and dignity by virtue of being created in the image of God. So these are all biblical. Um, I, I want to just really enunciate this, Sam, because it sounds to me like what you're saying, these are all tenets of the biblical worldview. We're not mm. we're not watering down the gospel in in the sense of saying sin is not really all that bad, or you know, you're all right, just try a little harder or just, you know, pray a little more. We're affirming the biblical worldview. And you're talking about um emphasizing one aspect of the biblical worldview which is true the dignity of the human soul the 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 what did you call it before the um the body what, what did you say the the body with a spirit in it but you had this great term oh yeah yeah that we're we're um we're not embodied spirits we're animated flesh that, animated that flesh yes mm -hmm. yeah i thought that was brilliant how you described that but so you're start you're starting with the character of the individual as being made in the image of God and having worth. And then you said, and that, what does that do? When we get to sin, when we talk about salvation, because we do have to get there, right? If yeah. the, the good news only makes sense in light of the bad news of our sin and condemnation apart from Christ. Yeah. So when we get to the sin, then that sin is, is brought into clearer focus because we're not just beasts. We are made in we're the We're not just beasts. And, and God isn't just some distant authority who has decided you know there are certain rules in place um we are we, we are rebelling against the god who made us uh, the god who thought us up in the first place um and that that makes sin less abstract more actually more offensive in god's sight um because it it's not just you know, there's there's some policeman out there, and you've broken a rule, and the policeman's unhappy. It's it's yeah. you're actually parking your tank on God's lawn him, himself and aiming yeah. at Him. Um, wow! So I find I find starting with creation helps people get a better understanding of sin, rather than because the, the 
common idea if, if they've even got an understanding of sin at all it's likely to be oh it's just breaking some rule somewhere that was a bit arbitrary to start with whereas got if it. it's if it's actually giving the finger to the one who who created you and gives you every breath and gave you your dignity that's even more horrific and it begins to make sense then of you know when you get further down the road of our understanding of of hell and its eternality is it's you know that the argument annihilationists sometimes use is that how can a temporal sin lead to an eternal punishment and it's not the duration of the of the crime it's the size of the offense and an, a sin that is infinitely offensive against the god of all glory and and creation is a sin that that warrants eternal condemnation yeah yeah sam i i, I don't I don't hear you sugarcoating the gospel here or or uh, beating around the bush. I mean, you just described sin as parking the tank on God's lawn and aiming it at him, giving God the finger. Man, this is um this is harsh language, Sam. It is, but it, it's it's harsh because it's it's so relational and that that is the whole point of this. Um yeah. it's yeah, it is. It is a, a direct assault on God's godness. Yeah, um, and again, not a remote authority, but a creator who is is very close to us. Um, so yeah, yeah. That, I, th I think it, it puts everything in sharper relief. Yeah, and I could see how starting with that and taking that mindset would be very useful to my friend as he's thinking about walking across the street and starting that conversation. And yeah. you know, this is not a guy who's shy about sharing his faith. It's just a question of how to get it started, you know, yeah. how to make that. Now, Romans 1, 16 and 17 say, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. So anytime we evangelize, we deliver the gospel, we hope and ought to expect that the gospel will do what it does. It will lead to salvation. But salvation brings about repentance, life change. So how is that going to play out for a gay couple of guys? What if they have kids? What if both of them become Christians? What if only one does? To be honest, these are eventualities that we probably don't feel prepared for. I know I don't. And that fear and that uncertainty might actually keep us from wanting to evangelize in the first place because we just don't feel equipped to walk these guys through the next steps of their discipleship. What happens when one or both of the two men in this same-sex relationship comes to faith in Christ? What happens to the relationship? What happens to the kids? Yeah. How in the world... Because that question itself, I think, is keeping a lot of people from even starting the conversation because they know they are not equipped to walk that couple of guys through the implications of discipleship. Yeah. What do you say to them? Yeah, it's um, it's it's messy and complicated, but it's the kind of mess you long to have in your in your church. The mess that comes <laughs> through people coming to faith. So yeah. let's let's pray to have that problem. Um. And it will depend. It's it's actually more straightforward if if both 
partners come to faith because then at least they're on the same page as each other now um spiritually uh which means they you know they're they're that i think doesn't make it easy but it makes it easier um it's i think more tricky when one is converted and the other one isn't right um so certainly in either case for the whether it's one who's converted or both the, the christian will need to repent of of their sin so that that will mean breaking off the the romantic sexual relationship um it will it will mean in the instance that you've you've dis, dis, described earlier it will mean that it's no longer appropriate to describe what that relationship had been as a marriage okay now that may be a further a few steps further down the road of discipleship to get to that kind of level of understanding of things. But at the very least, it's, okay, I'm now committed to putting Jesus in front of this relationship. Um, where both parties come to faith and there are, there are kids in the picture as well, um, that is where I think we need to put our, our money where our mouth is as local churches and and so receive these two Christian brothers and their kids into the, the fellowship of believers that whatever happens to their living arrangements and all the rest of it, they should be able to say, those kids should be able to say, we have more family now than we did before. Yeah. So it's church. not... Yeah, exactly. So it's not simply the case of, well, you two need to, to move out and this person needs to go over there. Hmm. That may be necessary, but I hope what else is going on is a way that actually means their experience of family is increasing, not decreasing. So the nuclear family may be reconfigured, but it's being reconfigured in a way that is actually blending it into a richer, deeper spiritual family. Um, uh, the, the church I've been um joining in in nashville we had a similar scenario with two women who had been together many years had two two daughters um and both the both these women wonderfully came to faith around the same time and both partners both partners did yeah praise god and i remember talking to them about probably about a year after they had come to faith and they you know had reconfigured things very significantly and mm. had repented of sin. And I remember saying to them, you know, how, how, how are you guys doing given all those changes? Yeah. Um, and they said, we feel so much closer as sisters in Christ than we ever did as lovers. No way. Sam, that's so, incredible. And it won't be the case that with every every same-sex couple that the friendship will be preserved hmm. and translated into, you know, the kingdom life in such a smooth way. Yeah. But it was sweet to me to see the the friendship part of their relationship now sanctified. Yeah. And the sinful elements of their relationship now repented of and discarded. So that and it, it yeah. just made me realize that. They haven't gone into, they haven't gone from more love into less love. They've gone from unbiblical love into biblical love. Yeah. Um, they've gone from a, a worse kind of love, 
or one understanding of love into a better understanding of love. Which is what you would expect if God is love. If we walk in his ways, we will be walking in real love mm-hmm. rather than the kind of counterfeit loves that we mistake for the real thing in the world around us. Yeah, that reminds me of C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. Have you ever read that? Yeah, I love that book. It's so good, right? Yeah. There's that one scene where they're taking a tour of heaven and there's the man who's come up from hell and he has on his shoulder, I think it's a dragon and the dragon is, is harassing him and it's sort of ensnaring him in, in sin and, and false ways of thinking. And he allows this angel, I think, or, or, or maybe it's one of the, um, the saints to basically strike him and the dragon down. And I'm probably butchering the details here, but they, the, the, no, no, you know what it is? The dragon gets killed and is, the man is glorified and his dragon far from just, it doesn't just disappear. It's like transformed into a stallion yeah. and it comes back. And the way Lewis describes this is look, um, God is not just in the business of, of just cutting things off from you, yeah. but he transforms so that those things in your life, which had been problematic for you, which had ensnared you actually become regenerated. They become redeemed. God redeems all of your life. And it's yeah. just this amazing thing. And I hear elements of that in the story of those two women. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, I, I think of another couple I know of at a friend's church here in the UK where, again, a, a two women from a, a same-sex relationship both came to faith. Um, and in their in their case, they realized they couldn't live under the same roof anymore, and they had a, certainly at least one child. And so someone from the church said, oh, well, I live just around the corner from you. So one of you is welcome to live here, and that way you are nearby. You're not under the same roof, but you're nearby. You'll still, you know, you're not being completely kind of cut apart. Yeah. But it makes me think that just as I hear people who have experience of evangelism amongst Muslims will often say, don't start evangelizing Muslims unless you've got a spare room that you're willing to use. You've got to right. go the distance here. I think for, for churches that, that do earnestly want to see spiritual fruit among LGBT folks, that's where the hospitality of the local church really needs to come in. Because again, we, we want people's testimony to be I now have more intimacy and community and family in my life than I had before. Yeah. And just to be clear, um, you're not, you're not saying don't evangelize, uh, wait, wait to evangelize. I think the call would be go find a spare room, right? Like, because we need to be evangelizing. So definitely we got to figure out a way to make this happen. Like put the structures in place, uh, move your church in that direction. Yeah, absolutely. It actually reminds me of Matthew nineteen twenty nine. Jesus says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Yeah. So it's like, man, you haven't gone from less love or more love to less. You've gone from, as you put it, unbiblical love to biblical love. You're receiving all this yeah. more love in the context of the local church, in your and the, new family. The, the, the line that is often used either by kind of progressive Christians or by secular folks is, 
you know, if you're, if you're calling people out of those same-sex relationships, the language used is you're, you're dooming them to a life without love and a life of, of loneliness. And the church should be a living demonstration that that is just not the case. Um, that they're not, that the love that they're stepping into is not a downgraded version of what they had before. It's a refined version of what they had before. But that means that the church has got to be on board with that. Um, I love that that passage in, in Matthew 19. It's one of my favorite passages to go to right. on this because it's it's one of the rare instances where a promise of Jesus depends on us to fulfill it. Yeah. Because we are the fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and sons and daughters that Jesus is promising to those who will go without such things. Yeah, and the cool thing is he is promising it. So the entailment of that is the church will do this. And it yeah. sounds like in, in your example, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's glorious to see. We don't always get these things right, but when you, yeah. when a church does get it right, it's, it compels the attention of people. Amen. I asked Sam for some practical advice, and I think this is going to be super helpful for you fathers who really want to model this well for your kids. Yeah, I think um, a piece of advice I was given months, which will need qualifying, but I think is a helpful rule of thumb, is if in doubt, do the friendly thing. So if you sense, oh, it could be awkward if I if I try and initiate a conversation, well, I'd, I'd rather the awkwardness was from me trying to be a friend than from me not trying to be a friend. Yeah. So just try. And if you stick your foot in it, you stick your foot in it. But I think it's honoring to the Lord to try to take initiative. So rather than thinking I've I've got to know exactly what I'm doing and what my game plan is before I even knock on the neighbor's door or have a, some kind of conversation with them is to think, okay, I'm just going to, you know, the Lord has things to teach me. I'll need to grow in, in my understanding of how to do this better, but I'm not going to wait until I think I'm ready before I start trying to witness to people. Um, well, God loves using people who aren't, frankly ready for what he's using them to do which is the only hope any of us have right yeah um so i I think uh don't put so much pressure on it i mean people are people so you may not know much about their particular lifestyle and demographic and however they're identifying and all the issues associated with that but they're still people so Mm. move towards them with the love of christ um I've been reflecting a lot recently on Mark 6 and the feeding of the 5,000 and how at the beginning of that narrative, we're told, you know, the crowd is is there. It's kind of overwhelming. But Mark says that Jesus, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, Jesus had compassion on them. And I, I've been very struck by that because as I see the lostness of the lost around me and it our culture is getting more lost, it seems, not less lost. It's easy for me to get irritated. And it's it's been convicting to me that I need to be more compassionate hmm. um, because they may be, you know, in some cases there may be people who who will be who might be even rude to us as Christians. Sure. But okay, they're going to be rude to me. I don't need to take that personally. They're just being lost sheep. That's what yeah. they're doing. Um, you don't get mad if a blind man steps on your feet. It, exactly. Exactly. I love that. 
Um, and then the very next thing Mark says was, you know, he then began to teach them many things. Hmm. So the most compassionate thing we can do for lost people is is to teach them many things about about Jesus. There's there's not just sort of one little gospel formula that everyone needs to to hear, but there are that sort of multifaceted variety of things that we can share about Jesus. Let's just tell them as many as many things about Jesus as we possibly can and see what you know what the Lord might use. Yeah. Um so I'd I'd encourage all of that. And and for dads in particular, um I think one of the most important things I've seen both as a friend and as a pastor and have been around lots of dads and lots of families and it's a it's such a joy and a privilege to to be a fly on the wall sometimes is that the dad is not called to give their their son or their daughter a sort of example of Christian perfection. Oh, that's a relief. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, actually what what you're called to do as a parent is to is to model repentance. Mm. And I think teaching kids to repent by showing them how you repent. So showing showing kids this is what you do with sin, and this is what you do with sexual sin. Hmm. So that when when your your child begins to reveal the particular ways in which they are a sexual sinner, a they're not going to grow up with the fear of you know I'm going to get kicked out the moment Dad knows what it is mm-hmm. that's going through my head. They're going to be thinking actually no I've my 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 Dad knows the crazy that's in that's in the human heart yeah and I've seen how he handles his own and other people's. Um, and I, I think that will make it easier for a child to be honest with a parent about, Hey, this is the stuff that's, that's kind of going through my, my bizarre, crazy brain right now. Um, and to, yeah. So I think modeling repentance is, is a really significant step. That's huge. That is, that is great. You're right. Because there's going to be something Yeah, there's going to be, as your kids grow, there's going to be something that they are going to realize about themselves. There's going to be sin that they give into. There's going to be temptations that are self-inflicted because they put themselves in harm's way. And then there's going to be stuff that's more intrinsic or, or uh, unavoidable. And if you're modeling that for them, if I've, if me as a dad, if I've been showing them, look, sin is inevitable, at least temptation to sin is inevitable as Jesus says, but here is how you deal with it. And here's what God offers you. This is the forgiveness. And not only the forgiveness, but the victory you can have over sin. Yeah. Um, Jesus has overcome the world and we overcome through the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. Yeah. And, and for dad to say, particularly to a son, listen, this is, this was the crazy I've, I've had to wrestle with in, in my life. And this Mm. is what's helped me. Um, These are some of the things I've had to, Mistakes I've made that I've had to learn from. These are some of the ways I've seen God's grace. These are some of the ways I've seen, as you say, a measure of victory in my life. Um, it, uh, I think it just cracks open a whole load of conversations that would be difficult to have otherwise. Yeah, wonderful. One of the things I love about my work with the Think Institute is getting to interact with the Think Squad on the Think Squad Facebook group. This is our free community 
of believers who are getting equipped to explain, share, and defend the Christian message. This is our lab for helping dads to lead their families well in defending the Christian message. I let the group know that I was going to be doing this interview and asked them to share some questions that they wanted me to ask Sam. And they did not disappoint. So then I asked Sam if he'd be all right tackling a few of them. Oh, sure. Yeah. Happy to. This first question is one that I know a lot of you wanted me to ask. Does Sam believe that same-sex attraction itself is sinful? Curtis Cutler asks, is same-sex attraction itself sinful? Does it need to be repented of? Yeah, that's that's a massive question, and it, it slightly depends on what we mean by same-sex attraction. But I take it from Matthew 5 that that lustful desire, even if not physically acted upon, is sinful. So inappropriate emotional, physical, sexual desires for people of the same sex are sinful desires. Hmm. Um, where where I think we, we need to be uh, a bit more nuanced is I think there is a distinction between temptation and sin. Um, now, James 1 tells me that temptation, I can't pin that on anyone else. That comes out of my own fallen nature. Um that's generated out of my own heart and my own mm -hmm. fallen desires. But at the same time, I don't think temptation is the same as sin. So I wouldn't want someone to feel as though just because I have the capacity to be tempted in a certain way means I'm sinning by having the capacity. Okay. Having the capacity is a sign that I'm a sinner mm. because the fact that I can be tempted by this is a sign that my flesh has fallen. Um, which is why I need to be born again and and to to come to faith. But I, I wouldn't want someone who is resisting and fighting temptation to feel as though they are they're condemned in the process. Because actually, that to me is 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 someone triumphing triumphing rather than someone who's who's failing. If that makes sense. Yeah, and that's very C.S. Louis Lewisian as well, because he talks about how it's the person who is tempted and overcomes and resists the temptation that knows the most about sin yeah. when you've when you've experienced uh all the the extent of temptation and you've come out the other side without giving into it you now know your enemy yeah. and and there's something very powerful in that and i also like what you said too sam about we're talking about someone who is fighting temptation not yeah. someone not someone who is giving into it at this point in the conversation i was reminded of a discussion that I had had years ago with some fellow pastors at Park Community Church in Chicago around this question. Is homosexual desire like other sinful desires for the opposite sex? After all, both are immoral, sexual, sinful desires. Or on the other hand, is same-sex desire different and worse? Because whereas heterosexual desire of, say, a man lusting after a woman that's not his wife, that is sinful, but it's a corruption of a good desire, which when properly expressed is a man's desire for his wife, a member of the opposite sex. Whereas on the other hand, same-sex desire is actually an unnatural, inappropriate, inordinate desire because man was not even created to desire and be with a man in that way. 
So does Sam think that they are alike or are they different? I agree with both. So there, there are there are ways in which sins are alike, and there are ways in which sins are different. Okay. So and I, I want to say that that the sin of homosexuality is both like and unlike other forms of sexual sin. It's unlike in the sense, as you as you say it, I think it represents a a further departure from God's design for human sexuality. Um, it's a slightly, it's a slightly greater twisting of that of that original design and pattern, and I think that that idea of things being more or less proximate to God's design is is reflected in the Levitical passages which itemise sexual sins, because in each passage in Leviticus eighteen and in Leviticus twenty, you get a progression where the sin is departing more and more at each point from God's original design um, and, you know, goes from adultery through homosexuality to, to bestiality, because in each case you're, you're going further and further away from what we were designed for. Right. So there's a sense, in, which is why I, I don't want to say all, all sexual sin is the same. Sure. But at the same time, there are ways in which all sexual sins are like, and, um, all sin is a distorting and a twisting of of something good. Um, so there's 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 no room for the person who's only ever experienced heterosexual temptation to feel superior to right. someone who's wrestling with same sex temptation. Yeah, my my sin. You know, we're both down here in the sewer, but you know, the filth that's covering me is a lot better than the filth that's covering you. You know, exactly. Yeah. So- <laughs> Which is why, again, I, I want to keep saying that, that if we understand Jesus rightly, he he should be humbling, deeply humbling and convicting all of us. Amen. Yeah. No, that's that's uh, that's really helpful. Um, and actually, we, we got to wrap in two questions there from Curtis Cutler. Um, oh, oh, I have to ask you this, Sam. Does the Bible whisper about sexual sin and, and, in, and in particular same sex uh homosexual sin you may have heard that phrase before this was a claim recently made in sermons from both the former spc president jd greer and in an allegedly plagiarized sermon by current spc president ed Litton. what did sam think about it um, i know that's a slightly loaded question i'm slightly I'm, loaded yes i've seen one or two snippets on social media about some of the origins of that um mm-hmm. and so i'm not i'm going to take the question at face value and not talk about the stuff it's spun out of totally that's great um so but no the bible does not whisper about these things at all um it's yeah. it's crystal clear and um it's one of the reasons i often say to you know a lot of a lot of christians will will say well can't we just agree to disagree about the issue with whether gay marriage is right or wrong and all that kind of thing. You know, can't it be like our view of baptism or our view of the millennium? Can't we just agree to differ? And the reason I say no to that is precisely because of the of the seriousness the Bible gives this very issue. Um, you know, First Corinthians six, if if someone does not repent of of homosexual sin they will not inherit the kingdom of god um 
that's different to to other areas of disagreement. I I may disagree with my friend who's Baptist, but I don't think they're going to hell to, for being a Baptist. And I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I think being a Baptist is punishment enough. You don't need any, <laughs> any, anything else on top of that. So it's That's a fair. different it's a different order of seriousness. Um, Eternity is at stake here. So um, yeah. If it's serious enough that Paul says it will exclude you from the kingdom of heaven, and that's not the only thing that's serious enough to exclude you from the kingdom of heaven, right? then um, we can't say, well, you know, God doesn't say much about it. Or, you know, I remember having an Anglican bishop over here once say to me, well, there aren't many verses that talk about homosexuality, so therefore we shouldn't, you know, talk about it with that level of categorical certainty. And I remember thinking, it doesn't matter how many verses talk about it. If it talks about it very clearly, then we need to talk about it very clearly. Um, hmm. And I remember saying to the, to the bishop who was leading a, a kind of campaign for climate change at the point at that time, I said, how many verses talk about climate change? Because <laughs> you're leading a whole diocese-wide initiative on that. But how many say? verses talk about that? Well, he, he, he tried to say, well, the, the Bible says a lot about justice and care for the planet and da 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 and i said yes it, it does which is why one application might well be you know good stewardship of our resources and, and all the rest mm -hmm. of it and you know the bible says a lot about <laughs> eternity and heaven and hell and yeah. you know um, there are more direct references about homosexuality than there are direct references about climate change yeah so if you can extrapolate from climate change to some big biblical principles, then how much more can you do so with homosexuality? Yeah, that's good. The next question from another Think Squad member, Darren Mail, arose from Darren's own experience. Does Sam believe that God can and will change same-sex attraction and transform that person to become heterosexually attracted as he created us to be? That's a good question. Um God is in the business of justifying and sanctifying sinful human beings, which means that our sins and debts are cancelled and our hearts are changed and our affections are reordered. Um, now, the assumption behind the question is that I am supposed to have heterosexual desire. Maybe I am, but I, I don't see a verse in the Bible that tells me I should find women attractive. I see verses that tell me that if I'm married, I need to be faithful to my wife. And then if I'm not married, I need to be chaste and self-controlled. I don't see a verse anywhere that says I'm supposed to be generally attracted to women. Now, I may have missed it. I'm happy to be corrected on that. Sure. So I'm not sure my sanctification necessarily entails heterosexuality what it definitely entails is holiness a hatred of sin that should be intensifying with time a love for christ and a and a, and a pursuit of holiness and christ-likeness that, that should be intensifying over time um and therefore a, a putting to death of any desire that is that is contrary um, to God's will. So part of the question, and this is a, this is a genuine question, I think we need to, to have more discussion about when Paul talks about the putting off and the putting on, the putting off part of this is very clear. Um, I'm to put off any physical 
inappropriate desires for, for other men. <laughs> what am I meant to put on? Putting, putting the question another way, um, what kind of sexual desires do we believe Jesus experienced? Which is a, a question I've, I've not really heard being discussed much, but I'd, I'm curious to hear what people would think of that. Um, was Jesus sexually attracted to women? Um, I, all I know is that his sexuality was unfallen. Um, so all that to say, I'm, I'm cautious about saying to people, you should be experiencing heterosexual attraction if you are growing in Christ. Isn't the, so to, when we think about Christ, we have to think of him in terms of his incarnation as well as the greater arc that he is the incarnate son of God. He's God, the son, second person of the Trinity, and he does have a bride. So his bride is the church. It's not Mary Magdalene. Sorry, Dan Brown. Uh, <laughs> right? What? <laughs> Uh, that's going to shock some people, but um, so so doesn't the fact that Jesus has a bride, and I'm not trying to do some weird thing where Jesus is sexually attracted to the church or anything mm -hmm. like that, but doesn't the connection and the allegorical or analogical nature between a heterosexual marriage between a man and a woman and the relationship between Christ and the church, doesn't doesn't that in some way answer our question that the the way that Jesus as a man relates to even if not one individual woman, at least the the feminine principle, without getting too weird and new agey with this, is he's he he does what a man does with his bride. He he marries her, he cherishes her, he washes her with water in the word. Mm. So don't don't we have an answer there? Uh, Jesus relates to the feminine in a masculine way, in a in a in a marital way. Do you see that as an answer or no? I think so. If if by that you mean then what what is an appropriate um, pushing on for me as a, as an unmarried? Oh yeah, unmarried yeah. Man, I, I I would think yes. I mean, devotion to the bride of Christ would be one of the things I put on. Um, wouldn't it, as a member of the Bride of Christ, or the Body of Christ as well? Wouldn't it also be? Wouldn't it be devotion to Christ? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I, I mean, obviously, that's, that's the most fundamental thing because he's yeah. he's the bridegroom, and so whatever, whenever I I experience, you know, sexual longing, sexual frustration, that that to me is a a picture of the deepest satisfaction that is going to be found when I see Jesus face to face, that that, that is the ultimate consummation that is to come. Yeah. And those longings now are a picture of the, of those deeper needs within the human heart for that kind of spiritual completion. Can I ask for a little clarification on that? So yeah. earlier you were talking about the differences and similarities between same sex desire, same sex attraction and heterosexual desire um and you made the point that there are similarities and differences but same-sex desire is further it's a further twisting of god's normative plan mm. um what you just said the the sexual um 
longings, emotional longings, things like that. You, If I understood you, you were saying that that's a picture of the longing that we all have that's ultimately going to be fulfilled in the consummation of the kingdom, Christ and the bridegroom. But if they are, forgive me if this is too, if I'm putting words in your mouth or, yeah. or extrapolating too much, if the desires are same-sex desires, is that still a picture of, or maybe in what sense is that still a picture of mm. that fulfillment or that longing for fulfillment that will only happen at the eternal, you know, the consummation on the last day? Yeah, um, to, to borrow it, I think I'm borrowing this phrase from N.T. Wright, but I, I, it's a broken signpost. Okay. So the, the, the actual, you know, if I'm experiencing inappropriate feelings for another man, those inappropriate feelings are not a picture of what I will eventually have with Christ as part of his bride. But if at a more basic level, I'm feeling that sense of frustration, incompleteness, need for something. Um, okay. At a more general level, that is a sense of, yeah, that's because, you know, part of the reason God has given us that sexual energy to begin with is, is to picture for us the, the deeper need we have for Jesus. That makes sense. Broken sign most. Even though that's from N.T. Wright, I'll, I'll still allow it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We have time for one more question from Darren. And Sam's answer to this question is going to set him apart from many other guys working in this field. Do you personally identify as a gay Christian? No. Okay. For the reasons I, I outlined earlier, I, it's, um, I think it's an unbiblical anthropology. Um, sexual feelings are, are part of what we experience, but to give them star billing and particularly to give fallen sexual feelings star billing as to who we are is, is, is very, I just think profoundly unwise. Um, so my, my concern with that, and this is opening up the discussion wider than the, the question may be desiring. Um, my concern with those who do identify as gay Christians, even if they're trying to live according to the, the teachings of the Bible in terms of sexual ethics, I, I don't think a Christian sexual ethic is sustainable if it's not supported by a Christian anthropology. Hmm. So to have a, a sub-Christian or unbiblical anthropology underneath a Christian sexual ethic, I just think is an unstable compound, and one of them will eventually give way. And ultimately, the the New Testament logic is that we our understanding of who we are is what then drives how we live. Yeah. So it's right that we, you know, it, it therefore matters that we understand who we are biblically and rightly. So I don't, I don't want to make any aspect of my fallenness part of my identity because those are things that belong to the old self, not the new self. Amen. Such were some of you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for that uh, very, very clear answer and, and thorough answer. Now, let's say you wanted to go out and do more research on this subject of how to evangelize your same-sex attracted and gay neighbors. One of the organizations that you might stumble across is called Living Out. My final question for Sam had to do with Living Out. This is an organization that Sam had co-founded 
years prior, but that he no longer works with. And the organization says that it's aimed to help Christians live out their sexuality and identity in ways that enable all to flourish in Christ-like faithfulness. Now, I admit, this is a group that I am very skeptical of. They do use terms like Christian and gay and sexual orientation. So my question was, did Sam approve of their work? Does he still stand by the organization? And does he approve of the terminology that they used? I was curious, especially in light of our previous conversation about terminology. Living Out produced a survey years ago about biblical inclusion and is your church biblically inclusive? In that survey, it says, a godly Christian's, this is a quote from the survey, one of the options that um, the church is, is asked, asked if they affirmed um, is, a godly Christian's sexual orientation would never prevent them from exercising their spiritual gifts or serving in leadership in your church. Okay, so so maybe this is sort of a, a twofold question. One, what do you think of the use of that language, sexual orientation? Do you think that that's biblically sound? Can Christians use that? And why? And then what do we do with someone who approaches living out and says, yes, as a minor attracted person, what we would call a pedophile, what do you what do you do when someone who is attracted to children comes and says, I want to work in the kids ministry and yours, you answered the survey. You said that my sexual orientation would never prevent me from exercising my spiritual gifts. How, how do we understand that? And what would your response be? Yeah, there's there's a number of issues there, as, as you've um, suggested. Um, one is the language of sexual orientation, which um, I I think is would have been more straightforward ten years ago. I remember hearing Al Mola talk about sexual orientation um, being a, as as being a real thing, um, and I think generally what what is often meant by it is there's there's often a pattern and a shape to our attractions. And it's useful to have some way of describing the particular shape of a given person's attractions. Um, however, in more recent years, sexual orientation has become, again, more of a matter of ontology and identity. And for that reason, I, I think it's less useful to us. Um, sexual orientation implies a sort of immutability um, and a fixity to something that I think in in reality is 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 often a bit more malleable than that. Um, people's attractions and desires, even taking outside, you know, even setting aside that the work of the gospel in someone's heart, people's sexual feelings and attractions change over time. Uh, not everyone's, not everyone's to the same extent, but it's not the case that everyone's sexual desires remain utterly fixed and a right. constant throughout their life. So I think sexual orientation has, has become in, in contemporary culture uh, more of a kind of this is the way someone is has been hardwired and therefore it's cruel to try to, you know, suggest any, any kind of change or restraint or anything like that. Um, so I, I tend not to use a language of sexual orientation for that reason. Um, that makes sense. With, with regard to the second part of, of the question, as you put it to me, I think 
Um, all of us are, are sexually fallen. Um, all of us have fallen desires and, and disordered desires. And for all of us, that includes our sexual desires. So the issue to, for me is I'm, I'm more interested in what someone is doing to mortify sin than I am the particular kind of sin they're mortifying. Um, if someone is seeking to mortify sin, then, you know, that I don't think the type of sin they're mortifying should be immediately disqualifying. It may mean that it would be unwise for them to serve in certain spheres. And so if someone was saying, oh, I'm, I'm, I wrestle with attraction to kids, then it wouldn't be wise for them to go into kids ministry. I mean, that's just common sense. Yeah. Um, that's not saying they're biblically disqualified from ministry it is saying it would be very unwise for them to be in this particular form of ministry given it aligns so closely with an area of temptation for them okay um, that makes sense so so yeah so it's not that's... it's not any and all areas of ministry to which the person might feel called or desire to work in no, because yeah obviously no one gets the, that. the presence of the presence of a gift does not immediately validate the person you know my understanding of first corinthians 14 is it's more about the not use of gifts than it is mm. about the use of gifts there are there are times when for the sake of the common good you don't use your gifts right but oh. either because there's there's 17 other people who have had the same set of gifts and you've got to take it in turns or, yeah. or for you know there may be other reasons why or there's no interpretation those those gifts are not actually where the church has its most acute need right now so okay yeah. Great. Um, that's man. You've, you've handled tough questions before. Have you not? Uh, uh yes. I mean, this, this area of conversation is, yeah. I mean, there, there are a few areas that aren't tough when it comes to these areas of, yeah. yeah. Well, um, I, I appreciate your answers. Do you, do you still, do you think that that living out survey, would you still stand? I, I don't even know if you had a part in that. Would you would you stand by it today? Do you think it's still a helpful guide for churches? Yeah. So basically, I I agree with what it was what it was intending to say. I think that there may be better ways now of saying some of those things. Okay. Um, but I think that the points are because I know the guys who who are you know I, I was part of the founding of Living Out. I know all the people who are involved with it. I I know them to be men who men and women who believe the Bible and. I don't have any worries about their soundness or anything like that. Okay. And um, and part of it is is also and this isn't to excuse every um every word that that may well be on the website, but I think part of the issue is when you're when you're you're ministering in a predominantly very secular context. Um again, the language you use may be different to if you're having this conversation primarily within a within a church context. Sure. Um, again, that that's not to justify any use of any terminology, but it's just worth bearing in mind differing audiences that are out there and and people, yeah, what what someone is saying to a particular audience may be misunderstood if we think they're talking to a different audience. All right. Now, because I know that a lot of you guys will want to do further study on this, I asked Sam to recommend some resources. Just remember that these recommendations are coming from Sam, not necessarily from me. 
Their inclusion here is not an indication of my approval or disapproval or any connection to the Think Institute, and you're always going to want to test everything against scripture, which of course is our ultimate standard. But that being said, Sam is a lot more knowledgeable in this area than I am, so I genuinely wanted to know what resources he would recommend. Here's what he said. Yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff out there. I wrote Is God Anti-Gay back in 2013, which feels like millennia ago now. Um, <laughs> yeah. And when I wrote it, there wasn't much out there. Um, and since there's 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 just some wonderful resources out there, um, both in terms of giving you a, a kind of theological overview and also in terms of just Christians sharing their story of God's goodness and grace in their lives in this context. So um, I, I love Rosaria Butterfield's work. Um, she's someone who writes, as you would expect, a former English professor to to write. Um, uh, I love Jackie Hill Perry stuff. Rachel Gilson's book, Born Again This Way, is a, is a lovely blend of testimony and good theology. Um, Rebecca McLaughlin has, has just released a book called uh, The Secular Creed, which goes through the, you know, those lawn signs people have that says, in this house, we believe that love is oh, yeah. that lives matter, da, 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 da. Yeah, she goes, life, through, she goes through each of those and, tries to sort of respond to them uh from a kind of biblical viewpoint Ooh, Master, like masterfully done wow um have you seen the signs that say here or in this house we believe in the father god all in god the father almighty and it basically starts it just goes through the apostles creed basically no i haven't seen those but that's that sounds a, a good... i saw a meme of it i don't know if they exist <laughs> <laughs> you have to have some guts to put those up on your lawn wouldn't you um, yeah so those would be good resources. I'm sure there are uh, Christopher Year One, Holy Sexuality. That's a another very good book. Um, I've I've written as God Anti Gay. I've also written a book on singleness called Seven Myths of Seven Myths about Singleness. I've write, written an evangelistic book about the Christian sexual ethic called Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With. And then the as I, we were talking about earlier, the most recent is uh, what God has to say about our bodies which is obviously looking at a broader range of things than just this. But um, so, yeah, lots, lots of things out there. Wonderful. And if people want to follow you, do they go to samalberry.com? Uh, they do, although I'm, I'm hopeless at updating that. Um, but I, I, I write stuff that's on places like Desiring God and TGC. Um, I'm on Twitter, so often what I'm doing will appear there as well. Fantastic. All right, well. Brother, thank you so much for taking the time. I have learned a ton. Thanks for having me on. I really, really appreciate it. Okay, that about wraps it up for this episode. The Think Podcast is a production of The Think Institute and is produced by yours truly, Joel Sedecase. The Think Institute operates under Church Movements, a ministry of Crew under the division of Crew City. To learn about how to support The Think Institute and my family tax-free, go to thethink.institute slash partner. I hope you heard something helpful today. I know I did. Remember, this is not goodbye. This has just been a short stop on the journey as we learn to lead our families in defending the Christian message. And we'll see you next time. Until then, I hope it made you think. <laughs>